Furthermore, he represents God as acting like the father of a lot of bad boys who goes and hides because he is afraid he will see them do something of which he would not approve. If God is limited either by an outside force or by his own acts, we have only a finite God. The Armenians say that God is anxiously trying to convert sinners but not able to exert more than persuasive power without doing violence to their natures is really much the same in this respect as the old Persian view that there were two eternal principles of good and evil at war with each other, neither of which was able to overcome the other. Free will tears the reins of government out of the hands of God and robs him of his power. It places the creatures beyond the absolute control and in some respects gives them veto power over his eternal will and purpose. It even makes it possible that angels and saints in heaven might sin and there might again be a general rebellion in heaven such as is supposed to have occurred when Satan and the fallen angels were cast out and that evil might become dominant or universal. 6. The way in which the will is determined. Since man is a rational agent, there must always be a sufficient cause for his acting in a particular way. For the will to decide in favor of the weaker motive and against the stronger, or without motives at all, is to have an effect without a sufficient cause. Conscience teaches us that we always have reasons for the things we do, and that after acting, we are conscious that we might have acted differently had other views or feelings been present. The reason for a particular act may not be strong, and it may even be based on a false judgment, but in each particular instance it is a strong enough to control. Scales will swing in the opposite direction only when there is cause adequate to the effect. A person may choose that which is in some respects is disagreeable, but in each case some other motive is present which influences the person to a choice which otherwise would not have been made. For instance, a person may willingly have a tooth pulled out, but he will not do so unless some inducement is present, which for the time being at least makes this the stronger inclination. As it has been expressed, a man cannot prefer against his preference or choose against his choice. A person who prefers to live in California cannot by a mere act of will prefer to live in New York. Man's volitions are in fact governed by his own nature and are in accordance with the desires, dispositions and inclinations, knowledge and character of the person. Man is not independent of God, nor of mental and physical laws, and all of these exert their particular influences in his choices. He always acts in the way in which the strongest inclinations or motives lead, and conscience tells us that the things which appeal to us most powerfully at the time are the things which determine our volitions. Says Dr. Hodge, the will is not determined by any law of necessity. It is not independent, indifferent, or self-determined, but is always determined by the preceding state of mind, so that a man is free so long as his volitions are the conscious expression of his mind or so long as his activity is determined and controlled by his reason and feelings. Unless a person's volitions are based on and determined by his character, 
they would not really be his and he would not be held responsible for them. In our relations with our fellow man, we instinctively assume that their good or bad volitions are determined by good or bad character, and we judge them accordingly. By their fruits ye shall know them. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but the corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Therefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20. And again, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. The tree is not free to produce good or bad fruit at random, but is governed by its nature. It is not the goodness of the fruit which causes the goodness of the tree, but the reverse. And according to the parable of Jesus, the same is true of man. And unless conduct does reveal character, how are we to know that the man who does good acts is really a good man, or that the man who does evil acts is really an evil man? While some, for the sake of argument, may insist that the will is free, in everyday life all men assume that the will is both a product and a revelation of the person's nature. When a man exerts a volition which results in robbery or murder, we instinctively conclude that this is a true indicator of character and deal with him accordingly. The very essence of rationality is that the volitions must be based on the understanding, principles, feelings, etc., and the person whose volitions are not so based is considered foolish. If after every decision the will reverted to a state of indecision and oscillation equiposed between good and evil, the basis for confidence in our fellow men would be gone. In fact, a person whose will was really free would be a dangerous associate. His acts would be irrational and he would have no way of knowing what he might do under any conditions. It is this fact that volitions are a true expression of the person's nature which guarantees the permanence of the state of the saved and of the lost in the next world. If mere free agency necessarily exposed a person to sin, there would be no certainty that even the redeemed in heaven would not sin and be cast down to hell as were the fallen angels. The saints, however, possess the necessity on the side of goodness and are therefore free in the highest sense. There is an absence of strife in their wills confirmed in holiness go on producing good acts and motions with the ease and uniformity of physical law. On the other hand, the state of the wicked is also permanent. After the restraining influences of the Holy Spirit are withdrawn, they become bold, defiant, blasphemous, and sin with an irredeemable obstinacy. They have passed into a permanent disposition of malice and wickedness and hate. They are no longer guests and strangers, but citizens and dwellers in the land of sin. Further, if the theory of free will were true, it would give the possibility of repentance after death. For is it not reasonable to believe that at least some of the lost, after they began to suffer the torments of hell, would see their mistake and return to God? 
In this world, mild punishments are often effective in turning men from sin. Why should not severer punishments in the next world be more effective? Only the Calvinistic principle that the will is determined by the nature of the person and the inducements presented reaches a conclusion in harmony with that of Scripture, which affirms that there is a great gulf fixed so that none can pass over, that the states of the saved and the lost alike are permanent. The person who has not given the matter any special thoughts assumes that he has great freedom. But when he comes to examine this boasted freedom a little more closely, he finds that he is much more limited than at first appeared. He is limited by the laws of the physical world, by his particular environment, habits, past training, social customs, fear of punishment or disapproval, his present desires, ambitions, etc., so that he is far from being the absolute master of his actions. At any moment he is pretty much what his past has made him, but so long as he acts under the control of his own nature and determines his actions from within, he has all the liberty of which a creature is capable. Any other kind of liberty is anarchy. A man may carry a bowl of goldfish wherever he pleases, if the fish feel themselves free and move unrestrainedly within the bowl. The science of physics tells us of molecular motion amid molar calm. When we look at a piece of stone or wood or metal, it appears to the naked eye to be perfectly quiet. Yet if we had a magnifying glass powerful enough to see the individual molecules and atoms and electrons, we should find them whirling in their orbits at incredible speeds. Predestination and free agency are the twin pillars of a great temple, and they meet above the clouds where the human gaze cannot penetrate. Or again, we may say that predestination and free agency are parallel lines, and while the Calvinist may not be able to make them unite, the Arminian cannot make them cross each other. Furthermore, if we admit free will in the sense that the absolute determination of events is placed in the hands of man, we might as well spell it with a capital F and a capital W, for then man has become like God, a first cause, an original spring of action, and we have as many semi-gods as we have free wills. Unless the sovereignty of God be given up, we cannot allow this independence to man. It is very noticeable, and in a sense it is reassuring to observe the fact that the materialistic and Metaphysical philosophers deny as completely as do Calvinists this thing that is called free will. They reason that every effect must have a sufficient cause, and for every action of the will they seek to find a motive which, for the moment at least, is strong enough to control. 7. Scripture Proof The scriptures teach that divine sovereignty and human freedom cooperate in perfect harmony, that while God is the sovereign ruler and primary cause, man is free within the limits of his nature and is the secondary cause, and that God so controls the thoughts and wills of men that they freely and willingly do what he has planned for them to do. A classic example of the cooperation of divine sovereignty and human freedom is found in the story of Joseph. 
Joseph was sold into Egypt where he rose in authority and rendered a great service by supplying food in time of famine. It was of course a very sinful act for those sons of Jacob to sell their younger brother into slavery in a heathen country. They knew that they acted freely and years later they admitted their full guilt. Genesis 42 verse 21 and chapter 45 verse 3 Yet Joseph could say to them Be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither for God did send me before you to preserve life. So now it was not you that sent me hither but God. And again as for you ye meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Genesis 45 verses 5 and 8 chapter 50 verse 20 Joseph's brothers simply followed the evil inclinations of their natures yet their act was a link in the chain of events through which God fulfilled his purpose and their guilt was not the least diminished by the fact that their intended evil was overruled for good. Pharaoh acted very unjustly toward his subject people the children of Israel Yet he simply fulfilled the purpose of God, for Paul writes, The scripture saith unto the Pharaoh, For this very purpose did I raise thee up, that I might show in thee my power, and that my name might be published abroad in all the earth. Romans 9.17, Exodus 9.16, and chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. Some of God's plans are carried out by restraining the sinful acts of men. When the Israelites went up to Jerusalem three times a year for the set of feasts, God restrained the greed of the neighboring tribes so that the land was not molested. Exodus 34 verse 24 He put it into the heart of Cyrus, the heathen king of Persia, to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 We are told the king's heart is in the hand of Jehovah as the water courses. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21 verse 1 And if he turns the king's heart so easily, surely he can turn the hearts of common men also. In Isaiah chapter 10 verses 5 through 15, we have a very remarkable illustration of the way in which divine sovereignty and human freedom work together in perfect harmony. Ho, Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, the staff in whose hand is my indignation, I will send him against a profane nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he saith, Are not my princes all of them kings? Is not Calno as Kashemish is not Hanath as Aphad is not Samaria as Damascus as my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images did excel them in Jerusalem and Samaria shall I not as I have done unto Samaria and her idols do to Jerusalem and her idols wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and upon Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. 
For he hath said, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom. For I have understanding, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures. And like a valiant man I have brought down them that sit on thrones. And my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the peoples. And as one gathereth eggs that are forsaken, I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or chirped. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Shall the saw magnify itself against him that wieldeth it? As if a rod should wield them that lift it up, or as if a staff should lift up him that is not wood. Concerning this passage, Rice says, What is the obvious meaning of this passage? It does most unequivocally teach, in the first place, that the king of Assyria, though a proud and ungodly man, was but an instrument in the hands of God, just as the axe, the saw, or the rod in the hands of a man, to execute his purposes upon the Jews, and that God had perfect control of him. It teaches in the second place that the free agency of the king was not destroyed or impaired by this control, but that he was perfectly free to form his own plans and to be governed by his own desires. For it is declared that he did not design to execute God's purposes, but to promote his own ambitious projects. Howbeit, he meaneth not so, neither does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. It consequently teaches, thirdly, that the king was justly held responsible for his pride and wickedness, although God so overruled him that he fulfilled his wise purposes. God decreed to chastise the Jews for their sin. He chose to employ the king of Assyria to execute his purpose and therefore sent him against them. He would afterward punish the king for his wicked plans. Is it not evident then, beyond all cavil, that the scriptures teach that God can and does so control men, even wicked men, as to bring to pass his wise purposes without interfering with their free agency? For anyone who accepts the Bible as the word of God, it is absolutely certain that the crucifixion of Christ, the most sinful event in all history, was foreordained. For of a truth, in this city against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, were gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel foreordained to come to pass. Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye by the hands of lawless men did crucify and slay. Acts 2, verse 23. In the things which God foreshowed by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Acts 3.18 For they that dwell in Jerusalem, and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor the voice of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet they asked Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all things that were written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Acts 13, verses 27 through 29. 
And not only the crucifixion itself was foreordained, but many of the attending events, such as the parting of Christ's garments and the casting of lots for his vesture, Psalm 22, verse 18, John 19, verse 24, the giving of gall and vinegar to drink, Psalm 69, verse 21, Matthew 27, verse 34, and John 19, verse 29, the mockery on the part of the people, Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, Matthew 27, verse 39, the fact that they associated him with thieves, Isaiah 53, verse 12, Matthew 27, verse 38, that none of his bones were to be broken, Psalm 34, verse 20, John 19, verse 36, the spear thrust, Zechariah 12, verse 10, John 19, verses 34 through 37, and several other recorded events. Listen to the babble of hell around the cross and tell us if those men were not free. Yet read all the forecast and prophecy and record of the tragedy and tell us if every incident of it was not ordained of God. Furthermore, these events could not have been predicted in detail by the Old Testament prophets centuries before they came to pass unless they had been absolutely certain in the foreordained plan of God. Yet while foreordained, they were carried out by agents who were ignorant of who Christ really was and who were also ignorant of the fact that they were fulfilling the divine decrees. Acts 13 verses 27 and 29 and chapter 3 verse 17. Hence, if we swallow the camel in believing that the most sinful event in all history was in the foreordained plan of God and that it was overruled for the redemption of the world, Shall we strain at the gnat in refusing to believe that the similar events in our daily lives are also in that plan and that they are designed for good purposes? Further scripture proof. Proverbs 16 verse 9. A man's heart devises his way, but Jehovah directeth his steps. Jeremiah 10 verse 23. O Jehovah, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Exodus 12, verse 36. And Jehovah gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Ezra 6:22. For Jehovah had made them joyful, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them, to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, rebuilding the temple. Ezra 7, verse 6. And the king, Artaxerxes, granted him, Ezra, all his request, according to the hand of Jehovah his God upon him. Isaiah 44, verse 28. Jehovah, that saith of Cyrus, the heathen king of Persia, he is my shepherd, he shall perform all my pleasure, even saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Revelation 17, verse 17. Concerning the wicked, it is said, God did put in their hearts to do his mind, and to come to one mind, and to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God should be accomplished. 1 Samuel 2, verse 25. They, Eli's sons, hardened not unto the voice of their father, because Jehovah was minded to slay them. 1 Kings 12, verses 11 and 15. And now whereas my father, Solomon, did laid you with a heavy yoke, I, Rehoboam, 
will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I shall chastise you with scorpions. So the king hearkened not unto the people, for it was a thing brought about of Jehovah. Second Samuel 17, verse 14 And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushi is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For Jehovah had ordained to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel to in the intent that Jehovah might bring evil upon Absalom. Chapter 17, page 228 That it makes God the author of sin. 1. The problem of evil. 2. Instances in which sin has been overruled for good. 3. The fall of Adam was included in the divine plan. 4. The results of Adam's fall. 5. The forces of evil are under God's perfect control. 6. Sinful acts occur only by divine permission. 7. Scripture proof. 8. Comments by Smith and Hodge. 9. God's grace is more deeply appreciated after the person has been the victim of sin. 10. Calvinism offers a more satisfactory solution of the problem of evil than does any other system. 1. The problem of evil. The objection may be raised that if God has foreordained the entire course of events in this world, he must be the author of sin. To begin with, we readily admit that the existence of sin in a universe which is under the control of a God who is infinite in his wisdom, power, holiness, and justice is an inscrutable mystery which we in our present state of knowledge cannot fully explain. As yet we only see through a glass darkly. Sin can never be explained on the grounds of logic or reason, for it is essentially illogical and unreasonable. The mere fact that sin exists has often been urged by atheists and skeptics as an argument not merely against Calvinism, but against theism in general. The Westminster Standards in treating of the dread mystery of evil are very careful to guard the character of God from even the suggestion of evil. Sin is referred to the freedom which is given to the agent, and of all sinful acts, whatever they emphatically affirm, that the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Chapter 5, verse 4 And while it is not ours to explain how God in his secret counsel rules and overrules the sinful acts of men, it is ours to know that whatever God does, he never deviates from his own perfect justice. In all the manifestations of his character, he shows himself preeminently the Holy One. These deep workings of God are mysteries which are to be adored but not to be inquired into. And were it not for the fact that some persons persist in declaring that the doctrine of predestination makes God the author of sin, we could let the matter rest here. A partial explanation of sin is found in the fact that while a man is constantly commanded in Scripture not to commit it, he is nevertheless permitted to commit it if he chooses to do so. No compulsion is laid on the person. He is simply left to the free exercise of his own nature and he alone is responsible. This, however, is never a bare permission 
for with full knowledge of the nature of the person and his tendency to sin, God places him or allows him to be in a certain environment, knowing perfectly well that the particular sin will be committed. But while God permits sin, his connection with it is purely negative, and it is the abominable thing which he hates with perfect hatred. The motive which God has in permitting it and the motive which man has in committing it are radically different. Many persons are deceived in these matters because they fail to consider that God wills righteously those things which men do wickedly. Furthermore, every person's conscience after he has committed a sin tells him that he alone is responsible and that he need not have committed it if he had not voluntarily chosen to do so. The Reformers recognized the fact that sin, both in its entrance into the world and all its subsequent appearances, was involved in the divine plan, that the explanation of its existence, so far as any explanation could be given, was to be found in the fact that sin was completely under the control of God, and that it would be overruled for a higher manifestation of his glory. We may rest assured that God would never have permitted sin to have entered at all unless through his secret and overruling providence he was able to exert a directing influence on the minds of wicked men so that good is made to result from their intended evil. He works not only all the good and holy affections which are found in the hearts of his people, but he also perfectly controls all the depraved and impious affections of the wicked and turns them as he pleases so that they have a desire to accomplish that which he has planned to accomplish by their means. The wicked so often glory in themselves at some accomplishment of their purposes, but as Calvin says, the event at length proves that they were only fulfilling all the while that which had been ordained of God, and that too against their own will, while they knew nothing of it. But while God does overrule the depraved affections of men for the accomplishment of his own purposes, he nevertheless punishes them for their sin and makes them to stand condemned in their own consciences. A ruler may forbid treason, but his command does not oblige him to do all in his power to prevent disobedience to it. It may promote the good of his kingdom to suffer the treason to be committed and the traitor to be punished according to the law, that in view of this resulting good he chooses not to prevent the treason does not imply any contradiction or opposition of it in the monarch. In regard to the problem of evil, Dr. A. H. Strong advances the following considerations. 1. That freedom of will is necessary to virtue. 2. That God suffers from sin more than does the sinner. 3. That with the permission of sin God has provided a redemption. And 4. That God will eventually overrule all evil for good. And then he adds, it is possible that the elect angels belong to a moral system in which sin is prevented by constraining motives. We cannot deny that God could prevent sin in a moral system, but it is very doubtful whether God could prevent sin in the best moral system. The most perfect freedom is indispensable to the attainment of the highest virtue. Fairbrain has given us some good thought in the following paragraph. But why did God create a being capable of sinning? Only so he could create a being capable of obeying? The ability to do good implies the capability of doing evil. 
the engine can neither obey nor disobey. In the creature who was without this double capacity might be a machine, but could be no child. Moral perfection can be attained, but cannot be created. God can make a being capable of moral action, but not a being with all the fruits of moral action gardened within him. 2. Instances in which sin has been overruled for good. Throughout the scriptures we find numerous instances in which sinful acts were permitted and then overruled for good. We shall first notice Old Testament examples. Jacob's deception of his old blind father, though a sinful act in itself, was permitted and used as a link in the chain of events through which the already revealed plan of God that the older should serve the younger was carried out. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were permitted to wrong the Israelites that by their deliverance God's wonders might be multiplied in the land of Egypt, Exodus 11:19, that these things might be told to future generations, Exodus 10, verses 1 and 2, and that his glory might be declared throughout all the earth, Exodus 9, verse 16. The curse Balaam tried to pronounce on the Israelites was turned into a blessing, Numbers 24, verse 10, Nehemiah 13, verse 2. The proud heathen king of Assyria unconsciously became the servant of Jehovah in executing vengeance upon the apostate people. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither does his heart think so. Isaiah 10, verses 5-15 through 15. The calamities which befell Jacob, as seen from the human viewpoint, appear to be mere misfortunes, accidents, chance happenings. But with further knowledge we see God behind it all, exercising complete control, giving the devil permission to afflict so far but no farther, designing the events for the development of Job's patience and character, and using even the seemingly meaningless waste of the storm to fulfill his high and loving purposes. In the New Testament we find the same teaching. The death of Lazarus, as seen from the human viewpoint of Mary and Martha, and those who came to mourn for him, was a very great misfortune, but when seen from the divine viewpoint it was not unto death but for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified thereby John 11 verse 4 the manner of Peter's death which apparently was by crucifixion was to glorify God John 21 verse 19 when Jesus crossed the sea of Galilee with his disciples he could have prevented the storm and have ordered them a pleasant passage but that would not have been so much for his glory and the confirmation of their faith as was their deliverance. Paul by his stern rebukes made the Corinthians sorrow unto repentance after a godly sort, for godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, a repentance which bringeth no regret, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Second Corinthians chapter seven verses nine and ten. The Lord often temporarily delivers a person over to Satan that his body and mental sufferings may react for his salvation. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5 Paul, in speaking of the adversities which he had suffered, said, Now I would have you know, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the progress of the gospel. Philippians 1, verse 12 When he saw that his thorn in the flesh was something which had been divinely sent upon him, a messenger of Satan to buffet him, so that he should not be exhausted overmuch, he accepted it with the words, 
Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weakness that the power of Christ might rest upon me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-10 through 10. In that instance, God made a poison of the cruelest and most sinful monster of all time to be an antidote to cure the apostle's pride. To a certain extent, we can say that the reason for the permission of sin is that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Such deep, unfathomable grace could not have been shown if sin had been excluded. As a matter of fact, we gain more through salvation in Christ than we lost by the fall in Adam. When Christ became incarnate, human nature was, as it were, taken into the very bosom of deity, and the redeemed reached a far more exalted position through union with Christ than Adam could have attained had he not fallen but persevered and been admitted into heaven. This general truth was expressed by Calvin in the following words, But God, who once commanded light to shine out of darkness, can marvelously bring, if he pleases, salvation out of hell itself, and thus turn darkness itself to light. But what worketh Satan? In a certain sense, the work of God, that is, God, by holding Satan fast bound in obedience to his providence, turns him whithersoever he will, and thus applies the great enemy's devices and attempts to the accomplishment of his own eternal principles. Even the persecutions which are permitted to come upon the righteous are designed for good purposes. Paul declares that our light affliction, which is for the moment, worketh for us more and more exceedingly in eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17 To suffer with Christ is to be more closely united to him, and great reward in heaven is promised to those who suffer in his behalf. Matthew 5 verses 10 through 12 To the Philippians it was written, To you it hath been granted in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer in his behalf. Philippians 1.29 And we read that after the apostles had been publicly abused, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Acts 5 verse 41 The writer of the book of Hebrews stated the same truth when he wrote, All chastising seemeth for the present to be not joyous but grievous, yet afterward it yieldeth peaceable fruit to them that have been exercised thereby, even the fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12 verse 11 The acts of the wicked in persecuting the early church, says Dr. Charles Hodge, was ordained of God as the means for the wider and more speedy proclamation of the gospel. The sufferings of the martyrs were the means not only of extending but purifying the church. The apostasy of the man of sin being predicted was predetermined. The destruction of the Huguenots in France, the persecution of the Puritans in England, laid the foundation for the planting of North America with a race of godly energetic men who were to make this land the land of refuge for the nations, the home of liberty, civil and religious. It would destroy the confidence of God's people could they be persuaded that God does not foreordain whatever comes to pass. It is because the Lord reigns and doeth his pleasure in heaven and on earth that they repose in perfect security under his guidance and protection. Many of the divine attributes were displayed through the creation and government of the world, but the attribute of justice could be shown only to creatures deserving punishment, 
in the attribute of mercy or grace could be shown only to creatures in mercy. Until man's fall into sin and redemption from it, these attributes, so far as we can learn, have been unexercised and undisplayed, and consequently were unknown to any but God himself from all eternity. Had not sin been admitted to the creation, these attributes would have remained buried in an eternal night. In the universe without the knowledge of these attributes would be like the earth without the light of the sun. Sin, then, is permitted in order that the mercy of God may be shown in its forgiveness, and that his justice may be shown in its punishment. Its entrance is the result of a settled design which God formed from eternity, and through which he purposes to reveal himself to his rational creatures as complex and full-orbed in all conceivable perfections. 3. The fall of Adam was included in the divine plan. Even the fall of Adam, and through him the fall of the race, was not by chance or accident, but was so ordained in the secret counsels of God. We are told that Christ was foreknown, indeed, as a sacrifice for sin before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20 Paul speaks of the eternal purpose which was purposed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 3.11 The writer of Hebrews refers to the blood of an eternal covenant. Chapter 13, verse 20 And since the plan of redemption is thus traced back into eternity, the plan to permit man to fall into the sin from which he was thus to be redeemed must also extend back into eternity. Otherwise there would have been no occasion for redemption. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.